0: What is it about life that is the older you get, the more time you spend looking back? Well, we found the same thing happens with podcasting. And as we've gotten better at this and our audience has gotten bigger, some of you might not have heard or found our early episodes. As we near 150 episodes, it can be a bit of a pain in the backside to scroll that far back in your app. So we're revisiting some of our early favorites, slightly edited, in a new regularly recurring series we call In Case You Missed It. Our guest today is Emily Lordy, who wrote a book on Donny Hathaway Live for 33 and a Third series. And welcome, Emily. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, congratulations on your book, first of all. It's one of my very favorite albums, and it's one that I can remember exactly where I was, when I heard it, and who turned me on to that album. Is that a similar case with you?
1: Yeah, certain certain moments, certain songs, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the great side benefits of your book, and I dug deep on Amazon, nothing there. So this kind of serves as the only biography of Donnie Hathaway out there. I'm wondering if that was part of the pitch to 33 and a third, or did it just kind of happen once you start writing?
1: No, that was definitely intentional. I noticed that there was a gap in the literature on Donny Hathaway, and I sought to fill that. So that was definitely part of the pitch that I made as I was proposing the book. But hundreds of people would submit proposals, you know, once a year. So, yeah, that was one thing that I hoped would distinguish my proposal was the Donny Hathaway, despite the fact that he is such an incredible and incredibly um, influential artist, 20th century popular music did not have anything like a a biography, critical biography, or even really very much information about him. There are a couple of books of poetry devoted to Donny Hathaway that precede mine. So mine isn't the first book about him, but it is a nonfiction book. And I really tried to bring in as much information as I could about his life and work. There's still, I should say, a full-length biography to be written about Donny Hathaway. At least one, if not multiple, biographies from various angles. And those would just require more time and resources and like going out and actually talking to people. I mean, it would be amazing to talk to you know people who might have studied alongside Donnie at Howard, for instance, in the late 1960s when he was there. It was only after I published my book that I was able to connect with his wife, Ulayla Hathaway, interview her people like that who have incredible stories about him should be tapped and talked to for the the other information that they can provide about donnie that i wasn't able to get to in this book but that's a long way of saying yes it's the first <laughs> well
0: it's a nice tidy little biography though i learned a ton about it because there wasn't that much and he was a complicated person and his music as you mentioned is you know profoundly influential People who haven't heard of them, when I play that live album, which is always where I start, they're blown away, you know? It's just one of those touchstone records.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah,
0: exactly. One of the things about live in particular is it, it has a lot of church in it. Yeah. You also mentioned that this record was in nearly every Black household in America. I'm curious if it resonated more deeply than, say, Motown or Curtis Mayfield or others, and why there was that connection to this record in particular.
1: Right. Well, to start with the question about the church or the the insight into the church, I I think that's a great way to put it. There was a lot of church in this album and in his live performances. So even though obviously he's recording and performing in these secular venues, the Troubadour in Los Angeles for Side 1 and then the Bitter End in New York for Side 2, He's making these into sacred spaces, um, spaces of ritual and spaces of worship. I, I always think of Donny Hathaway as, in some ways, testifying to the, the power of God through the power of music, you know, and that's kind of what, what gospel music is about, right? It's about, you know, creating this beautiful music that is supposed to reflect the greatness of God and encourage other people in believing that, that things are going to be all right. You know, somebody calls gospel music a testimony to good news and bad times. So you hear that in Donny Hathaway's music, and the church was really important to him, I think, not just that philosophy of we are going to get through this as a people, I should say. And that's the other thing that's very important about it is that collective ethos that you hear in bringing Black talk into the album, featuring all those different musicians, making sure that everybody has their turn in the spotlight, and then, of course, bringing the audience in. So all of those gestures toward other people are fundamentally kind of gospel um, or, or church-rooted gestures. The other thing to say about it is that there's like a politics to that, so that to say black music draws on the church as a resource that is historically available to black people. And that you know, a lot of people in that era, A part of what was so powerful about drawing on the church, whether you were a jazz musician or a soul artist or a gospel singer or whoever, was to say, you know, this is something that black people can claim and that really can't be appropriated. If you didn't grow up here, if you didn't experience this, if it isn't in some ways really Deeply ingrained in you and this communal kind of spirit, then you're probably not going to get in on it. So there's a way of suggesting or kind of marking a cultural specificity that Donnie is performing that when he is, is bringing the church into his music.
0: Certainly, the black experience in church is very, very different. I grew up with the, the Roman Catholic Church and masses in Latin, and I would much rather go to Donnie's church. <laughs> I'll tell you, that. it's it's just so joyous. You can hear that community. You can hear the connection.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, and you hear that in Curtis Mayfield's music, too. And, you know, songs like Move On Up were incredibly important, you know, to Black communities and and were taken as anthems. You know, it wasn't just like, I'm going to move on up. It was like, we as a people are going to ascend, you know, whatever that meant. And people could interpret that in different ways, whether that was like. You know, in part, maybe it was class mobility, right? But it was also like moving on up into a better world and really trying to ascend to these kind of higher levels of Black consciousness, of spiritual consciousness that were just going to make people as a whole, really, you know, there, there were some grand ambitions at this as a revolutionary moment, you know, which is about which is about world making, which is about really fundamentally changing things, not just for Black people, but for humanity as a whole. I guess what I'm describing is this interesting mix of everyday people kind of humility and, and modesty, right, that Donnie embodies. like, But, you know, he, he doesn't like the kind of guy next door type of vibe. Right? But then there's also on the other side of that, you know, this incredibly powerful ambition and aspiration toward uh, kind of spiritual betterment, collective transcendence.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that I thought you wrapped it up nicely when you talk about soul music in particular embodies a mixture of spirit and craft.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and one reason why it was important for me to say that is because, you know, soul music being deeply rooted in the church well, there's a discourse of immediacy, spontaneity, almost like unmediated, primitive expression, right, where you're just a vessel for the spirit and you're just singing whatever comes to you or you're playing whatever, you know, kind of comes through you in that moment. And that's part of it. But there's also a great deal of training, technique and craft that goes into the creation of this music. So there's that mixture, you know, and I, the way that I think about it sometimes is, you know, on the one hand, yes, Donnie was divine, I believe, divine gifted, but he needed to hone that gift, that that kind of talent without training really wasn't going to amount to very much. Um, The other way that you can think about the spirit and the craft together would be to think that what you're training for is that moment where you can give yourself over to the spirit and let it move through you so that you don't have to think about the technique at a certain point, but you wouldn't be able to get there if you hadn't acquired the technique through some serious intensive labor
0: that's an interesting point, especially on the live album, and since that's what we're talking about, he is so in the moment.
1: He does seem like he's very much in that moment, and it's, it's interesting to me that they had been practicing for that. His ensemble that was very carefully curated of the best musicians he could assemble for these gigs, and they had been traveling and touring and opening for different people before they got to the Troubadour.
0: You know, I read a review of this album and it's interesting to see how many people get that response from this record. And it was a fan on Amazon. They so perfectly summed it up and it read in part, you don't just get the music, you get the sweat, the movement, the ka the entire spectrum of emotion. I really couldn't say it any better than that.
1: In part about what people are doing at that moment, too. You know, I mean, it's about the church and the live music experience, you know, that is a, a Black music experience that Donnie is bringing to the realm of the called popular music. So, you know, from Curtis Live, um, which was this, you know, massive live album, to Aretha Franklin has done a live album at this point, Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis, Rolling Stones, The Doors, like all these people, like rock, soul, jazz artists, are putting live albums out and so Donnie and the folks at Atlantic, you know, his record label are trying to tap into that. They're like, you know, who better, really, you know, to to put out a live album that was, you know, in some ways it was just a very strategic plan you know, to get him more on the map.
0: He was a tremendous songwriter from the outset. Those first couple of records are really, really amazing. So let's talk about the live record. I think a ton of credit goes to Tom Fly because it's one of the best sounding records. You're right there in church. You know, I think Arif Martin is credited, but that record sounds great.
1: Uh, he was a sound engineer right for the bitter end sets he talked about it being such a challenge for him because that venue is so crazy like it had all these things that were not ideal it wasn't an optimal space in which to record a live album and so he they had to you know do all these technical workarounds in the moments leading up to the the sets to make it sound right i mean just even to like make it sound okay never mind to make it sound you know as like beautiful as, as it actually does and there are some work that they did of course you know they they you certainly can't add the sound of the crowd. You know, you can't, you know, all of that stuff was truly authentic to the moment, the way that people sing along, clap along. I agree with you that that Tom Fly is one of the kind of unsung heroes of that particular album Um, and did a lot of work on other other albums as well.
0: Yeah, very good reputation. And and that record is a high point, I would think. In doing some research, last night I listened to that record. I know, I know, poor me. Uh, But I went through and listened to all of live again. Side one was recorded at the Troubadour in LA, like you mentioned, and side two at the Bitter End in New York City. I've always felt, and I can't really put it into words, so I wanted to see if you had the same thought process, but there's some slight difference between the two, and I don't know. It's not necessarily sound or performance, but you can kind of just tell. Have you ever thought of that?
1: Yes, I have thought about that. Charles Waring is somebody who wrote some great liner notes to some of the, you know, later Donnie Hathaway compilations who suggests that perhaps it's that the bitter end was a dry venue that you couldn't drink there that accounts for some of the difference. <sighs> They're not as loose as the, the folks at the Troubadour. So that might be part of it he is playing slightly different songs at the bitter end or that the songs that they choose to include anyway from the bitter end are slightly different. And perhaps it's that they didn't how familiar the audiences might have been with the songs that were included from the different venues.
0: One of the things that you also explore, it's one of the things that is so great about live is Donnie's tendency towards cover songs, particularly in the live setting. Maybe he kind of crawled into those songs or even hid behind them, but He did a lot of cover songs. I wonder what you thought of that, because he was a great songwriter, but in the live setting, he really excelled at the cover songs.
1: And I think that there's something interesting about the soul cover more broadly. Aretha Franklin are covering the Beatles, covering Simon and Garfunkel, you know, we get Nina Simone's covers of Bob Dylan and Charles doing You Are My Sunshine. Like, there's so many... Artists who are who are covering, it's like the cover really becomes a key site of creative innovation. It's a way that an artist can can very clearly put their own stamp on a song is to to show here's a song you're very familiar with, and now listen to my take on it. And you can hear who I am in you know part through the contrast between what the original person did and, and what I'm doing here. And so it's a way of staking out your your ground, expressing your identity, your your very distinctive voice and your identity as an artist. And so I think that's a big part of it for Donnie. You know, And the live album was supposed to, as I said, kind of put him on the map. So in that way, it it kind of makes sense that he's going to, you know, play some songs, you know, particularly a song like um, Jealous Guy that had been such a hit for John Lennon. Um, And instead of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is probably the the best, really the best example of this because it was such a massive hit. And Donnie opens with it fearlessly saying, you know, like, you think you like that? Here's my version of it. And so I think, yeah, in some ways, like showing the incredible genius that he had at, at hearing how, I mean, in some ways, much better a song could be. He, he really showcases that, in, and it makes sense that he does that on this album because the album itself is supposed to be this new kind of moment of emergence for him. Yeah, the other thing that you said that was really interesting, the idea that the cover becomes almost a cover for him or like a, a veil behind which he can almost hide. And I think that that's probably a part of it too that there's a poet and critic and philosopher uh ed pavich who one of the volumes of poetry on donnie that i mentioned and i talked to him for the book and he suggested that in some ways because donnie especially later in life because he was sort of mentally unstable and it was hard for him to perhaps know where that distinctive core identity was you know just in his sort of mental world Ed Pavlich suggests that the cover might have been a helpful place for him, a refuge in some ways. Like he didn't have to say, "Here's my own original composition," you know, that's coming out of my soul, because maybe that soul wasn't always easy for him to pinpoint. But he could say, here's my version of somebody else. And so that that sense of kind of personality with, with somebody else that could become almost like a support, that you're not in this alone. And, you know, when the you is kind of hard to articulate anyway, you know, to say, look what I can do with this other person's work might have been a comfort and a consolation to him.
0: And you mentioned what's going on, which leads off live. For most people, that's the first thing you hear. That might have been a track that I would designate no one should ever cover this again. (laughs) And then Donnie goes out, he matches it, and he might better it. It's got the street vibe, the church vibe, and, and Marvin's was definitely more measured. But Donnie just goes off.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it really becomes a kind of passionate plea, like, what is going on? The decision, though, to to open the set, to open the album with that song, you could read it in a couple different ways. And one is a gesture of humility, saying, like, okay, you might not know me and my music, but here's a song you certainly will know by Marvin Gaye, and I'll play it for you, and it'll be really good. But I think it's more like a badass gesture, really, saying, like, this <laughs> no, this song this is a massive hit. I'm coming for you, Marvin Gaye, like... <laughs>
0: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media.
2: Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get twenty percent off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
0: We're talking to Emily Lordy, who is the author of the Donny Hathaway live entry in the Thirty Three and a Third series. You know, another thing is that uh, I went back and listened to the cover of Yesterday by the Beatles, which is equally as eye opening. And what I found really interesting that speaks to some of the things you just mentioned is how he introduces that to his audience. You know, it's like a song by this band, the Beatles. Like they wouldn't have heard it. You know, he he had a habit of owning songs that he covered. I was surprised to learn in your book and doing the research. I shouldn't have been, but A Song for You was originally written and recorded by Leon Russell. And I always thought Donny Hathaway wrote
1: that song because he just owns it. People who came up in that era, I think, probably did identify that song with Leon Russell, even as covered as it was in the early 70s. But yeah, it's a similar thing to The Marvin Gaye in some ways is Donny saying, this is a beautiful song and look how much more beautiful it can be. I think of Donnie as a very integrative sensibility, which is to say that he's bringing in his background and his love of gospel music. He's bringing in jazz. He's bringing in classical music, different kinds of things. You know, anything that almost anything that he's doing is going to be this amalgamation of every different kind of musical style um, that he wants to bring to bear. So when Donnie is going to recreate a song like a song for you, he's going to bring all of this to bear on it in order to create something you know, beautifully innovative and, and new. In terms of Yesterday, I think that Ray Charles had done a cover of of Yesterday prior to that. So people would have known that song. Um, But I also think of that as being in a tradition with some of the other Aretha Franklin covering Eleanor Rigby as well as Let It Be. So you know there are a lot of people who are who are kind of doing the Beatles. Beatles are unavoidable, right? Like they're inescapable. And so I I hadn't really picked up on Donnie saying what this is a song by a band called the Beatles. Perhaps there was a little bit of irony, like haha, you know maybe you know these guys. Perhaps there was also somewhat of like a kind of democratizing gesture, like this is a band called the Beatles, like other bands. They're a band, and you can do their songs, and in some ways you might outdo their songs.
0: Speaking of outdoing the original, we come to You've Got a Friend. That is insane. Donnie just is so connected with the audience. What can you tell us about the call and response with the fans and the women especially? I mean, the first two notes he hits, they go crazy
1: they record You've Got a Friend um, as a duet, which is beautiful, and then Donnie brings it, you know, to the troubadour and sings a solo version of it. But what's so cool is that the women, particularly in the audience, assume the role of Roberta Flack. So it's like they understand it, you know, because as you say, he plays, you know, the, the opening notes on the piano and they're just like erupt. And so they understand it to be, to have been a duet and perhaps inspired by that duet structure. They just jump on in and start singing along with him. And he you know, just an instantly kind of like rides that wave and defers to them by singing the harmony so he kind of like lets them have the main melodic line just as he has had done for roberta flack you know in their recording of the song it is it's a beautiful moment it's like a church moment you know it's, it's making the crowd a congregation they're embodying the promise of the song which is to say you do have a friend and, and he makes these women these singers in the crowd friends with each other you know just through the power of that moment and that performance
0: He brings along the men into the song, too. You know, it's not just the women. There's a very interesting dynamic there where he's guiding the singing in the room.
1: Yeah, but it's not quite as carefully, deliberately orchestrated as it would be in a song like The Ghetto, where he traditionally did say, okay, here's the the part, you know, he had like this crowd call and response participation thing that he wanted to to create with that, with live performances of, of the, the Ghetto. And so he would say, here's ladies, like, this is what you sing, talking about The Ghetto. <laughs> and then he was like, guys, you go, The Ghetto. Talking about the and so he like kind of had them play off um, the men and the women in the crowd play off each other in that way. It was you know really cool, and it was but it was like very. This is Donnie, the music teacher. This you know I, I you know might have said that at, at some point you know in his education he thought he might be a music instructor, and you hear that as he's coaching these people on their lines. But, you know, it's interesting to me that you don't hear that and you've got a friend. It does sound rather more spontaneous. Like, the women just, like, you know, take it and run with it and and they're, like, making their own harmony it's like as the song goes on. And you're right that the men are are part of it, too. And Johnny is, I love how he, you know, you can tell, you can just hear how... How excited he is that this is happening without him having to like coax it out of the audience and towards the end of that recording as you know he says this might be a record here you can tell that there probably everybody in the room was thinking all the people involved in the recording process like this is our track like we got it
0: right and you mentioned a teacher he would have been a pretty damn fine preacher as well in terms of how he brings the room together and you know it's an amazing moment and a great song that's one
1: that he might own as well one of his early collaborators, I think that um, it is that I quote in the book, who says that he would go to church with Donnie and Donnie would, you know, like kind of break down, to deconstruct all the different moves that the preachers were making, he kind of knew what they were going to say and how they were going to say it. And as somebody, again, who had grown up in church and had started, you know, been performing as little Donnie Pitts, like he had, spent a, he had heard a lot of preaching. And so I think that it's very, it's very apt to suggest that he could have followed that lead.
0: You mentioned earlier his take on Jealous Guy, John Lennon's song. Donnie just stands that on its head. You argue in the book that he subverts or at least changes, you know, the message of that song or the point of view, maybe. Can you
1: explain that? Sure. So when John Lennon records his Jealous Guy, it's a sad apology. It's very humble. I'm just a jealous guy and I'll whistle, you know, (laughs) my penance. And I wouldn't really have thought very much about it, to be honest, if I hadn't heard the Donnie cover of it, which completely, as you say, um, and as I suggested, the book transforms the meaning of the original. So what Donnie does is he builds the tension of the song as he goes, whereas John Lennon keeps it at this very kind of mild, penitent salt um, register Donnie you know really he's, he starts more powerfully with this kind of like barrel house piano you know that he's doing Um, and he really just kind of builds from there and and so it's a song about sorry that I you know acted so poorly I behaved so badly but I'm just a jealous guy you know I, I saw you you know looking at him and I just I got jealous I'm sorry um, but with Donnie, I suggest that like the, the very act of apologizing for being jealous seems to like make him mad all over again. Just like re- He's almost reliving that moment of seeing his, quote-unquote, his woman with somebody else. And so he's not penitent at all. By the end, he's like, I don't want nobody looking at you. That is still where he is. And so it becomes a really different, interesting kind of persona there you know, of the jealous guy. And the way that I read it, finally, is to say that he, therefore, points up the kind of irony. That's in Lenin's version too, which is to say, you know, if you're just saying, Oh yeah, I'm just a jealous guy, then you're kind of just accepting that as your identity and you're not actually apologizing. Like you're not actually gonna change. And I think you hear that in Donnie as again the the anger, the passion seems to escalate and he's really and not he's not in a better place when he ends than he than where he was when he started.
0: That's interesting. I wonder, you know, we've talked a little bit about maybe some of the reasoning behind all the covers, you know, maybe commercial appeal or, you know, the timing of the record and certainly the performance and the the historical aspects of how, you know, African-American songwriters have always done this. Do you think, though, that maybe it
1: cast a shadow on his songwriting? So I guess what I would suggest is that, that Donnie was perhaps at his best when he was in community. That idea was really at odds with the American star system that demands the one singular great individual. You know, this is a moment, too, when so many soul singers, Curtis Mayfield, Diana Ross, and Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, are breaking off from the groups that they had started out in. Temptations is another good example of this, right? The people are are breaking off. They're splitting off from these groups. And it's not to say that that is a terrible thing to do or they're just in it for themselves, but it's to suggest that that is the logic of the music industry. It is to say, okay, the group is fine. But what we really want is who's the best, right? Who is the person who's going to emerge from this community of musicians and really kind of stand out? And Donnie's, I think his whole kind of ethos, his whole sensibility was not that. It was really more, you know, that kind of church-based, we're in this together. And as much as he might have wanted to stand out, there's a tension there. I think he wanted to be the big star. He wanted to be as famous as Stevie Wonder and as famous as Marvin Gaye. There's no question about it. But it was like he was at his best when he was in community. And that's what you hear in the live album with that interaction with the band, with the interaction with the crowd and with the interaction with those other artists songs.
0: So unfortunately the end of the story is tragic. Donnie had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. It's just a true karmic screwing over that musically this guy could connect with anyone and bring everyone together.
1: Yet in the end, he's kind of all alone. The disease is so isolating and so scary and so hard to explain to anybody that, yeah, yeah, I think he he was very much alone with it. Mm -hmm. You know, there are several theories about
0: his death. The official version is suicide, and he jumped out of the 14th floor of the Essex Hotel. But a lot of kind of alternate theories come over you know he had a habit of hanging out of windows and singing and maybe he fell you bring up a few different things there's one that's really interesting and i probably won't get it right here so maybe you can help me out but it's like an african tribalism or a mythology it's sort of based on his fear that his music was being
1: stolen can you give us a little more insight into that so he wasn't well like they had gotten him out of the out of the hospital in order to come record these albums, and his his wife Eulela, still says to this day he shouldn't have been working. You know, he was high, heavily medicated, just kind of out of it. But you know, as was his way, he could do music. He could he could come alive and kind of be, I think, more himself. Anyway, you know, at the piano and and in that setting, um, with the artists that he knew and loved, I and mean, he loved Robert Flack, so. But anyway, there was a moment where he runs out of the studio, allegedly, and is kind of found, like, crouching and shaking in the corner, and he's... They, they say, what ha- "What's the matter?" And he says, "It's it's white people are stealing my music." And it's this experience that he's having, that he's narrating from within his troubled mind, that his brain is hooked up to the wires, and that white people are stealing the music through this direct channel into his brain. And so, and perhaps this is kind of obvious: is that this was not just a delusional fantasy. You know, it, this is this is the history of American music and so it came to him probably in this particular kind of distorted way but that there's a there was a real truth to that there was a real kind of nugget of that i that i wanted to suggest that the live album is trying to kind of defy that i mentioned the gospel roots the church roots of that album that are things that if again if you didn't kind of grow up as a part of this community you can only get to a certain extent there's a way in which people from the outside can't steal that can't really take that from you and that that is part of the power of the live album and the power of Donny Hathaway's legacy, I think, for later African-American musicians. What I do think is that there's one, there's a certain way that one could read if it was a decision to leave the world, that one could read it as a desire to escape suffering and to ascend to a higher plane of divine being. Um, and that you could read that through a kind of African-American folklore, um, the story of the flying Africans. You know, it, there's very many versions of it. But in one, it, it's just that, you know, people stolen from Africa or being brought over. And at a certain point, you know, they either arrive here, you know, on American land or are, are just, you know, in sight of it and, and kind of turn around and just fly home, as as they say, you know? And I think about Donnie as flying home. And as in that way, kind of keeping sacred and safe that that beautiful jewel of his heart and of his music um, that had brought so many people together and had moved so many people, you know, that way of saying, like, I'm not going to live with the suffering and that there's there's something that I'm taking with me um, that, that cannot be that cannot be claimed, that cannot be stolen, that cannot be tarnished. And so I'm I'm taking it with me and I'm flying home.
0: And there's a line from You've Got a Friend that, you know, after hearing that, that really resonates a little more deeply where he sings um, it's about stealing your soul. And then he says, but don't you let them. Yeah. You know, when I hear these stories and, you know, certainly the reality of, of how it ended, it's it really just makes me want to put on the record again. There's just so much life and joy and community on that record. But the live record is the one I always come back to.
1: Me too. Thanks for that insight. And so you've got a friend too. That's really beautiful.
0: Well, thanks for going backwards in time with us for this episode of In Case You Missed It. We're going to try and keep this going every other week. And don't forget, if your app only shows you 20 episodes or so at a time, check out our brand new mobile-friendly website, allmusicpodcast.com, where all of our shows are instantly available at your fingertips.